Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're talking about Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, and we're in chapters 15 and 16 today, which uh, talk about the human body, free will, God's providence, and probably many other topics besides. It's pretty broad. Packed. It's a packed uh, couple chapters. Calvin here is kind of moving from, uh, he talks about this kind of twofold knowledge, knowing God, knowing ourselves. Here he's kind of turning to who we are, but knowing God is never far behind. It's, it's always, it always seems to be pretty connected in Calvin. You can't yeah. separate those things too finely. In fact, it's a bit of a confusing uh, twofold knowledge that Calvin has because it always seems a bit mixed together. Um, here uh, we though see ourselves and it begins by talking about our nature. Uh, we're going to learn about Adam, how Adam was before the fall, how humanity is after the fall, and there's going to be different ways that works, but we can kind of see what the body is like if we look at a section in chapter 15 and in section 2. So I'm just going to read a kind of a relatively long passage here, and I want to do that just because it's so, um, it's weird to our ears, and I think that makes it interesting to hear. So Calvin says this, and I'm beginning at the beginning of section 2. Furthermore, that man consists of a soul and body ought to be beyond controversy. Now I understand by the term soul an immortal yet created essence, which is his nobler part. Sometimes it is called spirit, for even when these things are joined together, they differ from one another in meaning. Yet when the word spirit is used by itself, it means the same thing as soul. As when Solomon, speaking of death, says that then the spirit returns to God who gave it. And when Christ commended his spirit to the Father and Stephen his to Christ. They meant only that when the soul is freed from the prison house of the body, God is its perpetual guardian. Some imagine the soul to be called spirit for the reason that it is breath or a force divinely infused into bodies. But that is nevertheless, but, uh, but that it nevertheless is without essence. Both the thing itself and all scripture show them to be stupidly blundering in this opinion. It is of course true that while men are tied to earth more than they should be, they grow dull. Indeed, because they have become estranged from the father of lights, they become blinded by darkness, so that they do not think that they will survive death. Yet in the meantime, the light has not been so extinguished, extinguished in the darkness that they remain untouched by a sense of their own immortality. Surely to God's judgment, um, no, you skipped the, line. the conscience, which discerning between good and evil responds to God's judgment, is an undoubted sign of the immortal spirit. For how could emotion without essence penetrate to God's judgment seat and inflict itself with dread at its own guilt? For the body is not affected by the fear of spiritual punishment, which falls upon the soul only. From this it follows that the soul is endowed with essence. Now the very knowledge of God sufficiently proves that souls, which, which transcend the world, are immortal. For no transient energy could penetrate to the fountain of life. And then he continues by talking about the mind, which is an immaterial uh, part of our body or part of the soul, our sense perception, which is the, you know, um, our sight, our, our touch, all that kind of stuff, our intelligence, and so on. In fact, he even has an interesting part about dreams that comes up. Maybe we can talk about that in a second. But just briefly, reflecting yeah, on this passage. Yeah, talk a little bit about Oh, he definitely did. Yeah, it's some curious stuff that's going some, some, some curious stuff that's going on in here. Um, you know, it's interesting right at the very beginning of, of, uh, of that section there, number two, uh, he speaks of the soul and the spirit as interchangeable terms. Um, so it would seem that he holds to the view of what we would, what we call dichotomy. Um, so that, you know, the trichotomous view, which Luther held to, um, believe that there was body, soul, and spirit. 
he sees them uh, both as interchangeable, which is you know fairly a fairly common enough view in the history of the Christian tradition. Um, but then he you know, he's arguing here. Um, this whole section is about um, trying to prove the immortality of the soul. So he recognizes it as a created thing. God creates it, so it's not eternal in the sense that it's always existed, which you know certain certain forms of Greek philosophy would hold to. Um, but nevertheless, it's Im immortal, and it, it can it can uh, exist outside of the body. And then he uses this very interesting term uh, right after his quote reference to Stephen in Acts seven. Uh, he says that uh, they meant only that when the soul is freed from the prison house of the body. And I'm sure that's probably what you're thinking of when you thought, well, this would be interesting to read because it's not familiar to our ears. Um, but we, we sort of, we, I hear that language and it leads towards a kind of Platonism. I, I think Platonism is great. And I think that Christians need to recapture a certain kind of Christian Platonism. Uh, but there are certain pitfalls. And, uh, and I wonder if the language here sounds like it could be a pitfall uh, that maybe he's falling into. Though Calvin's not so, uh, you know, he's not so ignorant as to just say that flippantly. Um, so what do you think, man? Prison house of the body, or is the, the, the prison house of the body is, is what keeps our souls in. Right. Well, I have to wonder, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I thought the whole section was kind of interesting, just mind and all that kind of stuff. Soul, I guess we can get to mind. Um, but this, I guess, is included in that, you know, implicitly. What is our body? Is it a prison house? Um, is it a, is it clay? I mean, Paul talks about his clay. Uh, we are in our tent. I think he calls it in Corinthians. Yep. A tent is a temporary thing that we, we end up leaving. It's not a permanent residence. Um, and yet at the same time in the New Testament, we are permanently going to be in the body at the resurrection. Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly what Kelvin is, is thinking here. Here's my most charitable way to look at this. <laughs> Kelvin knows that our current body is, is dead. Our soul is alive. And the, one of the goals of salvation is the resurrection of the body so that it is united perfectly to our soul in this very uh, complementary way. And I, and I suspect when he's talking about the body, he might think the body as it is now after the fall of Adam. And therefore, in, in a certain sense, uh, all of us know, like, as you get older, you have medical conditions, you get sicker, weaker, it kind of works against you. And the later, the more and more you go on in life, the more and more you're hoping for the resurrection of the body in some yeah. way. So that's the most charitable way. The, the less charitable way could be how it just kind of sounds, that like Calvin uh didn't value the body as much as maybe we would today generally speaking and you kind of know that because he talks about the soul as the nobler part yeah so the soul is more noble than the body is what kelvin says and now you have to wonder what does he mean and i think all of us who um don't really have a substance ontology today <laughs> yeah we need to talk to uh, joshua ferris oh okay yeah, yeah i want to read that book actually um we, that, that sounds really strange, but you got to remember when Calvin's talking about the soul, he means our mind, which is the reasoning part, our intellect, which kind of overlaps, our will, the choosing part, yep. and all that kind of stuff. So he, he's not really thinking of some sort of esoteric Casper, the friendly ghost. Mm -hmm. He's thinking about how we work in our uh, embodied state. Like we have reason, we have will, we do all these different things. And so by noble, he, he possibly just means that part of our constitution, which leads and guides us by thinking and choosing. And when you think of it that way, it, it's a little bit less offensive to our ears. It's not just like he thinks Casper, the friendly ghost inside of us is better than our flesh, which is weak and, and unimportant. Yeah. What do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, he starts off this whole discussion in 15.1, where he's saying, we're going to talk about now the creation of man. He's going to remind us, you know, we have to have, to, to really know ourselves, we have to know God, but we also have to know the self and, you know, that whole thing that he, he deals with in the very beginning of the Institutes. And then he says, actually, to have a knowledge of ourselves, we have to have another, it's another twofold knowledge. This one here is we need to know ourselves as we were first created, and then we under, need to understand ourselves in our condition after the fall of Adam. And so here he's talking about all the kind of like first created uh, stuff. And, uh, and he's showing that, you know, as you're saying, uh, that within the soul, uh, this immaterial part of ourselves uh, comes first the mind or, you know, the understanding. And then flowing from that comes the power of choice or the power of the will. And, uh, and it's the will that governs then our actions, right? And so it seems then that, that that explains why the primacy of the soul over the body, because that's where all the faculties, all the operations are happening that are going to control then the actions of the body. And, uh, and he's going to go on and say things like, you know, later on in, in section two there, he's going to say that with our intelligence, so he's going back to the mind, which is part of, the, part of the soul. He says, we can see the invisible God and the angels, something the body can by no means do. And so he's saying that like, there's this certain sort of perception that we have that's part of our soulish qualities that's rooted in mind and, uh, and will um, that allows us to see things that, you know, in this, this you know, as he's going to say, this house of clay, quoting from Job Poor, isn't able to do. And so, um, you know, and, and this is all going back to then proving this idea of the immortality of the soul. So your body can die, but now your soul is going to continue on. This sort of explains why, you know, we'll have consciousness, uh, a hyper awareness of, of God, our surroundings, angelic beings in the intermediate state. Um, and all that stuff's really cool. And I'm, I'm following with him. It's just interesting how he has a, it, it, it yet. Okay. That might be the case that the soul is primary. It's just interesting that he's, he's kind of like calling the body a prison house, which it, it might, it, Again, he's still talking about the pre-fall condition. So, um, yeah, I don't know if he's, he's slipping back and forth here. Is it a prison house because of the sin? I mean, he's going to get into all that stuff in, in, in later on in this reading. But, yeah, it's, it's very curious. I, I'm not entirely sure. I think when you read the, the whole picture, and he speaks a lot more about certain things about free will in the next book, it's, it feels pretty balanced. But there are some language, like the one we've, we've noted here, that is just odd. Yeah, odd. It's, I mean, it's hard to understand. He, he, this whole in this whole set chapter, uh, he's deriding the philosophers, um, and uh, but then you know he'll say, I think it's in uh, in section six, he said it would be foolish to seek a definition of soul from the philosophers. Of uh, of them, hardly one, except Plato, <laughs> has recently affirmed its immortal substance. And, uh, and he says, yeah, there's some other followers of Socrates that recognize this too. So he's obviously a very high view of Plato. The philosophers that he'll attack in this section are the Stoics and the Epicureans, who are both relatively, you know, they don't have a, a view of the immortality of the soul, uh, you know, high, highly fatalistic. So he's going to go after them under the Stoics, especially under the Providence section against the fatalism. Um, but he has a high view of Plato. And... Um, and so, you know, that, that again, will kind of like further help explain where he's, he's coming from, right. but still don't understand the kind of seeming disparagement of the body there. Yeah, and, and of Plato, and I think probably Aristotle, he also says in the same section, I indeed agree that the things they teach are true, not only enjoyable, but also profitable to learn, and yeah. skillfully assembled by them. 
but it's quick to say it's, it's one of those things that's interesting like there's lots of things we can study history and math all these different things in the world he kind of views uh philosophy in terms of anthropology the same way it's interesting they make great observations super helpful yeah but you know for piety it's sort of just like an interesting topic just like any other topic is and passes over it and i think for us when we think of philosophy we almost think of it as like some competing thing that can you know just but philosophy for philosophy for him was essentially just to study the world yeah and um you know and i guess more than study the world but um here he's just saying look they made great observations about the body some of it's super enjoyable, super interesting, just like some of us might love sports or math or English literature or science or biology, but we can just quickly summarize it. And he does, he summarizes Plato and then moves on. He talks about the five senses, fantasy, reason, and so on. Um, so, it's interesting because yeah. he'll, 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 he'll kind of like, he's somewhat disparaging of Aristotle at one point. And then uh, I don't remember, I have it marked somewhere um, where he's kind of negative on him. And then he's like, yeah, but you know, it's his views are basically okay. Let's just tweak it a little bit here in terms of, you know, the appetite or something. And, uh, and so even though, you know, he kind of wants to be a little bit down on, on Aristotle, he's still okay with him. Right. Um, one of the things I was, I was recently reading um, in this book here is I was kind of prepping for this Richard Muller's um, book on, on, on um, human willing and choice amongst the reformation post-reformation uh, theology theologians. Um, makes an observation in the book there that, you know, because Calvin doesn't have a theological training, uh, he's trained as a humanist. So obviously he's reading a lot of the Greeks, the ancient Greek philosophers as a humanist writer, doesn't have the training in the schools the way somebody like Peter Martyr Vermeule is going to have. So he's not going to have the same level of precision. And there's just going to be some things that he's saying that he's not entirely, you know, um, as expert on, like at the very end, I think of 15, he, it's either 15 or 16, he, he starts to make, 16, he starts to make some distinctions and, and he speaks positively of the schools, but you don't really get a lot of that in him. And so I wonder, I wonder if he'd had a more scholastic grounding, if he'd be more favorable to Aristotle like Vermeule was. And, uh, and I think his heavy reading of Augustine, who's obviously very indebted to Plato, also plays into some of where, you know, Calvin comes from. Yeah, I think so. In the parallel section in book two, he not only does um, um, Augustine, but he spends a great deal of time working through Bernard of Clairvaux and Done. cites, like, I think there's like a whole page of citations from him. So Calvin is, in some ways, deeply invested in medieval and patristic theology. Yeah. It's only certain kinds. He, he seems to have a particular bias towards uh, contemporary scholastic theology. Uh, yeah. Probably because of the engagement he had with them. Um, but he, he very rarely, I don't know if he ever refers to Thomas by name, but he kind of does refer to him by, I think he says Thomas's name actually, but it's unclear if he actually read Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. He knows of him, everyone probably knew of him. Yeah. But, um, if he actually spent that time in that kind of scholastic schooling. It is interesting, he, he knows Peter Lombard, he can, I think, cite him as well. So yeah, he has a, a different kind of training. And it's, you know, once you get into the 16th century that Kelvin's in, you find that not just Peter Martyr Vermigli, but a whole group of reformers have similar theology to Calvin, but are very positive towards the scholastic medievals and use them frequently. Um, so I think this is more of a preference and a choice on his part. Um, and yeah, you do see a lot. It is very platonic and I'm not against that like you are. I think uh, anyone can. No, make I, I'm not against it either. I, I'm just against that idea. Just yeah. where it sounds like, you know, the, the prison house of, of the body. Um, I just, 
if, if he's wanting to make a distinction, say, hey, like, it's a, he says it later that it is the house of the body, which is fine. Right. Um, and that does reflect some of those texts you were talking about in terms of like, you know, jars of clay. And um, it's just that negative language. And if it's, if yeah. it's explicable purely because of the fall, that makes more sense to me. Uh, because it's not essential to, to to the human body to be sinful, um, but it's just hard to tell well, at this you point. You have to make Kelvin sound better than he is. I mean, that's one of the nice sure. things about reading these great works. I mean, if Kelvin's wrong, he is. He's not. He's not nope. scripture, and it's it's wonderful to know that because it, it doesn't make you appreciate him less. You just appreciate no. him as a human theologian. Yeah. And so I think he probably does uh, use language that's unhelpful. He's balancing the overall theological perspective, but in the way that he presents it, I think is going to lead people to denigrate the body more than they should. I think that's fine to say. Um, it doesn't make him bad or, or us better. We're wrong in many areas too. I just think in this case, that's, that's fair to say. Right. Um, we just have to be careful too. This is my problem is yeah. I want to be careful with disparaging him on this too, because he's no yeah. fool and no. he knows what he's saying. He, every word that he writes is very intentional. Um, so I kind of, I just want to understand why he says it. Cause yeah. I might actually believe it. <laughs> yeah. Know? It could be. <laughs> I find it interesting. You, you probably raised a dichotomist. He has a, an immaterial and material side. Uh, one thing that just kind of reminded me when you're talking is uh, Irenaeus. So his view is basically the same, except when we get the Holy Spirit, we become trichotomists. Oh, really? Interesting. You wouldn't mm. quite say that, but that's the implication. Yeah. Because we, we're, uh, we're basically body and soul. The Holy Spirit comes and is sort of infused or added to us or participated mm. Interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting paradigm. I'd have to read him to figure out exactly what he means, but I just found that kind of a fascinating anecdotal thing to say, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, the image of God, section three, it's in the yep. soul. Yeah. Body. Yeah. He, again, and this is going back to this kind of like body stuff, right? Is that he doesn't want to locate it. He says right at the, at the end of four, even, um, he doesn't want to locate it in the dominion mandate um, that some will, right? That we, we're the image of God because of the creation mandate in Genesis. Um, he's saying, no, we can't do that. And, uh, and he's, he says it's, it's something more in terms of the immaterial aspect of who you are in relationship to the soul. It's also funny there that he doesn't like Augustine's, um, trying to kind of like, is, is seeing in, in Augustine's psychology, the three parts to us that kind of echo or correspond right. to Trinity. He's like, that's stupid. <laughs> he's yeah, like, I, no I remember means, that. That was no means there, sound. Right? <laughs> so he doesn't like Augustine there. Uh, and he doesn't like uh, parts of the soul either. Um, like you have different soulish parts, like there's a, a appetites and what, what's interesting. If I'm right on this, I think I probably am. I think Aristotle was not saying there are three souls. There's, there's genres in the soul. The singular. Yeah. So I think I'm not, I have to double check and do my homework. I'm sure. But I think Kelvin's actually wrong on his reading of if that's Aristotle, because Aristotle doesn't actually say we have three souls. It's the, it's the genre of souls, the type of soul. Yeah, I'd have to go back. My my good friend uh, who teaches out here um, at Metro Denver, his name's Caleb Coho, and he, he okay. did his PhD at Princeton on uh, Aristotle and the Soul. So I'm helping him move this weekend, so I'll have to ask him. Yeah, ask him that question. <laughs> I'm report back, because um, I don't know if I'm 100% right. I just that's my my thought, anyways. Yeah. Um, let's move. Let's move on. What else we got? Because there's lots more to yeah, cover here. So. Cover. Then what about uh, uh, Adam? The fall. Okay. That's a big um, one. Why did Adam fall? Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we know certain things about his condition, right? He's created uh, pre-fall without any kind of flaw. He's given mind. 
uh, as he says in in, uh, in number eight here, right? So the mind allows him to distinguish things between good and evil, right from wrong, and uh, and then added to that is the power of choice, uh, and that directs the appetites, and then thus controlling the body as the body acts. Then, and uh, and he has absolute free will um, in the you know the, he says it maintains the will maintains its integrity in the pre-fall state. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, at this point, I'm just talking about Adam's condition. I don't want to get into predestination right now. Um, so he yeah. tells us that, which is kind of funny, but you know it's coming. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, Adam could have stood if he wanted to and, uh, and fell entirely by his own will. So there's nothing in God that compelled him to do that. And, uh, and so then it was an absolute free choice uh, for, him, for him to do it. Mm-hmm. And he, so he's, he's kind of describing the state. Uh, but doesn't yet kind of get into the question really, uh, at least unless I'm missing something uh, of the why it happened. Yeah. I think the only answer he really gives uh, in section eight is therefore Adam could have stood if he wished, seeing that he fell solely by his own will. Yeah. It was because his will was capable of being bent to one side or the other and was not given the constancy to persevere that he fell so easily. Uh, But the highest rectitude it was in his mind and will so on. So, it's interesting that he talks about perseverance there, right? It's yeah. he could have, but he he was not. So God does not endow Adam with this. Sorry, there's an airplane going over my head here. I don't know if you can hear that or not. Can you hear that? Yeah, that's fine. It's the FBI checking you out. Yeah, big brother. Big brother. Um, yes, but he, he doesn't have the constancy to persevere. So he's he's upright. He has the he has the ability to, to distinguish between good. And he has the power to choose one or the other, but he, it seems almost like he doesn't, as, as Calvin's saying, he doesn't have the power to persevere if there's the, the choice, the temptation to choose evil. He doesn't persevere through that temptation. Seems yeah. like, but that's but that's also not a defect in Adam either. It's not a defect, um, but he had the power of deliberation between one and the other. So there, there is a school of thought that essentially says, our, well, this is a bit different, but our power of deliberation, our gnomic will, is, I think, an effect of the fall. And the more and more we come closer to God, the less we have the power to deliberate. And that actually gives us free will again, because mm-hmm. the only choice you have is the best choice. You're not free to choose worse choices. Which know? makes sense then when we get to heaven, right? Because that yeah. just gets amplified to the yeah. fullest degree. So I think that'd be like Maximus the Confessor, but I, um, anyways... So um, he's, he's going to go on and attack the philosophers again. Um, he says the philosophers are sort of helpful when we're trying to understand if, the way they rationalize about the human condition. Now it's maybe helpful for understanding, you know, humans in their pre-fall state, but now because the philosophers don't have a doctrine of sin or a doctrine of the fall, they just, they're just going to fail. They're going to mix things up all the time. Right. Which um, is criticism. Yeah. He also talks about the absolute freedom of God here. There's no, there was no, he says that, nor was it reasonable for God to be constrained by the necessity of making a man who either could uh, not or would not sin at all. Such a nature would indeed have been more excellent. So he's saying if God had decided to make uh, Adam with the ability to not fall, that would have been great. Um, but there was nothing in terms of God. More excellent? Where does he say that? Uh, he says it uh, right on 196 of the battles, uh, McNeil. Um, it's just past footnote 32. Um, and so, so he's saying that, you know, it would be, be great if, if Adam had been created without the ability to fall. Um, but there's nothing that constrains God uh, to have had to have created him that way. 
Um, God is absolutely free um, in terms of his ability uh, to, to, to have done something like this. And, and where, where does, where does the reason why God decided to, to create Adam in the, in the state where he has this kind of power of contrary choice, he says it lies hidden in God's plan. <laughs> we don't know. And it goes back to this whole idea we were talking about before. Like you really just can't speculate at certain right. points. And this will go into something that we'll, we'll get into probably in uh, book two or book two, I suppose, but kind of like how, why Christ came and the atonement, whether it's necessary or voluntary or yeah. I don't remember the exact uh, particular language, but Kelvin seems to say that God chose this one for his own purposes. Yep. It could be many other ways it could have been done. And in this case, there could have been a more excellent state for uh, Adam as well than he was before the fall. Yeah. I think that's important. We, we've moved uh, theologically to a place where we're, where I think we are, our knee jerk is to say, this is the only possible way everything has to be. Yeah. Where I think Calvin wants to protect the freedom of God a bit more than that. Big time. Yeah. And that's a very hard thing to do to understand God's freedom, right? Because we're contingent beings. And so there's something necessary about us in the world that we live in. God is absolutely free of contingencies. I mean, he acts according, you know, he's, Calvin's going to get into like in this next section on providence about God's omnipotence, you know, what it is and what it isn't. But, um, you know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing constraining upon God, I guess, really than his own nature. Uh, well, let's get into providence just briefly as we kind of um, yeah. begin to finish the arc of this episode. What do <laughs> we want to say about providence? What is um, really fascinating? Well, yeah, there's lots. I mean, this is a really, really important part of Calvin's theology. So I'd say this is probably a very core part of the Institutes here when he's talking about providence. Um, and he's, he's going to write on it. Um, you'll, you'll see in the footnotes, um, there are other references to Calvin's other writings on these issues. And so it's a big deal. Um, he, he is really uh, concerned uh, to uphold the idea that God is actively involved in his creation um, so he says that God is not, you know, he'll say right in, uh, in kind of in the end of that first paragraph of section three under chapter 16, that, uh, that God is not merely some sort of first agent or first cause that sets everything in motion. And so therefore all of the kind of like unfolding of nature can be attributable to God, but you know, these secondary causes are almost like irrelevant to, to, to what God's doing. And he's saying, no, 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 God has, has not only created and set everything in motion, but he's also intimately involved mm. in his providential care. So he, he, makes a, he makes a kind of comparison on the top of page 202 um, that it, God's providence pertains no less to his hands than to his eyes. So he's not just sitting back observing things, but his hands are involved. So he's actually intimately involved. And uh, so he did, he, on the top of 203, he's talking about then this relationship between watching and caring. Um, so he's watching in order that he can care. And, uh, and then later he'll attribute that to God's fatherly care. Mm. Um, remember where I have that noted, but um, yeah, so I, 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 like, I like that. It's the idea then that, that God really actually does care about things. Hmm. No, yeah, so providence is God's kind of, personal fatherly care of all things that come to pass whether special or general um quick question for you does the word providence appear in the bible no i find that interesting i think that's right and uh providence is a uh philosophical commonplace 
Yeah, Providentia, the Stoic notion, right? The Stoics who Calvin's railing against here. And that's what he's careful to do, right? He's saying, listen, upholding a view of providence, but it's not the Stoic view. It's not fatalism. Yeah. And I think that goes back to, I mean, uh, reality is created by God. And there's certain things you can observe that are just in your face, true. The invisible things of God and his power are there. You can't deny it. And providence is one of those things. It's a Romans one item. So you have to yeah. talk about it. And scripture does under different words, for sure. I mean, I think, was it Psalm 104 and all this kind of stuff? Like it's all throughout scripture, but providence itself is something derived from natural theology. It's an observation yep. of natural theology, but scripture talks about it, if that makes sense. Yep. Not that they're in conflict at all. But he's also he's also very careful to kind of rightly frame his natural theology. Like he talks again in, in the next paragraph in number three, uh, that you know, we, we've got to be very careful that we don't defraud God of his glory if all we do is make appeals to universal laws of nature, yeah. um, we have to see those laws as actually being directly governed by God moment by moment, instead of just a theistic view of, you know, the universe being set in motion. Hmm. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I, so I just, I won't talk about it. But I've been kind of reading like David Hume and things like that recently. Um, I'm just kind of thinking through causation and some of the, yeah. that God was the, uh, the invisible means of causation and effect kind of just reminded me of that when you said that. Um, well, I think that's helpful. I think we can maybe we've, we've gone about half an hour. We've talked through these topics. I have to admit that I, I think I forgot to read this chapter. So I don't want to say Uh-oh. anything about it. I've read it before. I have markings all over it. I just, uh, I think I finished it 15 somehow. Yeah. Um, so I like that God's fatherly care, God's providence is his, his care of creation. And I think we're, uh, we're getting into some really interesting, tricky topics. And I, we're so close to book two where I think um, a lot of this opens up into topics that we are really excited to talk about. Yeah. And I cheated and read ahead a little bit on his free will section in book two. And I think it's, it's going to be so interesting once we get there. He says a lot of things that are maybe unexpected um, that we're not used to hearing. And I think really quite helpful. So next week, so this is chapters 15 and 16. Next week are chapters 17 and 18. And then we finish book one out of four. So we're already, wow. A quarter of the way there when you just count the books. Awesome. <laughs> Although book four is really long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, awesome. uh, we're yeah. getting close. So thanks, Ian, and we'll see you next week.